Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a serious issue for Europe, but will actually provide a longer-term impetus towards using more renewable energy. 10% of its whole national income is its energy bill, and that's higher than it was in the 1970s oil crisis. Welcome to The Bit, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. Gas supplies from Russia have been significantly reduced due to the war in Ukraine. OPEC has announced oil production cuts, and both Europe and the U.S. have stubbornly high inflation that central banks are trying to control. With winter fast approaching, what impact will that have on the economies globally, and when will it ease? Joining me today in the studio, I'm pleased to welcome Gargi Chaudhry, head of iShares Investment Strategy and Markets Coverage, and from our London office, Alex Brazier, deputy head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. Alex, Gargi, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Oscar. Gargi, you're in studio here with me, so maybe I'll start with you. I should mention you have been both a host and now a guest of the Bid Podcast, so you're a woman of many talents. <laughs> I am debuting my participant responsibilities. It's very exciting. Yeah. Well, you tell me which is the harder role maybe <laughs> okay. at the end. So let's start with you. This has been a tough year for markets, for the economy. The word that is appearing more, it feels like in the press, is recession. Are we in one? The textbook definition of recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, and we've seen that, but... I think it's more nuanced than that. What are the indicators that you're looking at to determine whether, in fact, the U.S. is in recession? So I will say that, as you pointed out correctly, the technical recession is when we have less than zero growth, two quarters consecutively. We already saw that when we got the second quarter GDP report in the end of July. But I think you have to take a broader lens than that. Our recession indicator that my team in investment strategy and I have put together is really looking at five different areas of the economy. So obviously the unemployment rate comes to mind, but broadly, how is the labor market doing? It also looks at the manufacturing sector of the economy. We look at industrial production to see how that is versus the previous month that we got the data. We're looking at credit conditions. How much is that tightening or easing? So is there credit availability? Another indicator is confidence, so small business optimism. Where is that and how is that shifting? And then I'd finally say the last thing that is important is consumers. What is the personal income looking like? How is that growing or not? And when we look across all of these different measures, what we're finding, at least today, and we're recording this in October, is that we're not really in a recession yet. Can we see pockets of stress in the economy that will push us into a recession? Perhaps. But as of now, we are not seeing us in a recession at this moment, despite the GDP data that shows the negative two quarters of growth in the U.S. So if you look at a broader set of data, we're not in a recession. But come back to that in just a second. Alex, going across the Atlantic and you're sitting in London, what are you seeing from your perch across Europe more broadly? Is Europe in a recession? Well, Europe as a whole, a bit like the answer Gargi just gave, the answer is no, not yet. The UK, though, activity is actually beginning to fall and it's showing more of those signs that Gargi was describing that you look for with a recession emerging. But the real issue is not so much are we in a recession, 
But are we going to have one? Is one foretold at this point? And to our mind, you look at where inflation is in Europe and core inflation is once you strip out energy and food and those sorts of things at high rates, it's signifying that these economies are basically overheating which is a bit weird, given that they haven't yet regained where they were pre-pandemic. And that's because their production capacity is constrained. In the UK, it's due to labour supply and energy availability. And in Europe as a whole, it's more to do with energy availability. But for those reasons, the economy is overheating. And that means if the central banks want to get core inflation pressures back down again, then there has to be a recession. We haven't quite seen it yet. But it's foretold in some ways, because if the central bank wants to get inflation down, there's going to need to be one. So the commonality from both your perspectives is that the U.S. and Europe are not in a recession, not yet. Is what is potentially pushing these regions towards recession the same underlying factor? You mentioned energy, for example, in Europe is a big driver of why that region may be headed into recession. Is that also the reason that the U.S. is potentially headed that way? Or is there another driver of what's pushing the economy in that direction? So in the U.S., when and if we do get a recession, one of the things that I believe is that it will be Fed-induced. So the Fed does want to slow down demand right now. They are looking at an economy which has headline inflation above 8%. They're looking at core inflation. And as we know, core inflation strips out the impact of the more volatile components. So it takes out food and energy prices. But even having done that, it's still running at 6.6%, which is the highest it's been in 40 years. And the Fed does not want to see that. Their mandate is for inflation to be at 2% or thereabouts. And they are indicating to us that they'll do what it takes to bring inflation back down to that 2% level. And what they mean by that is they'll actually have to let the unemployment rate rise. They'll have to weaken the labor market. They want to do that. They have to do that. The labor market's still very strong. So we're at 3.5% unemployment rate. There is about 1.6 open jobs for every person looking for work right now. So call it 10 million open jobs right now. That's a very good sign. But the Fed doesn't want that to be the case, or at least they want to bring that closer to about a one-to-one ratio. Coming back to your question, what would drive the recession in the U.S.? It does feel like it would be Fed-induced. It would be them moving interest rates to a very restrictive territory. And if we look at the market as we speak today and compare that to December 2021, the market was pricing in for a very gradual path of rate hikes, about 75 basis points of rate hikes for the next year. Now, fast forward to today, we're now pricing it over 450 basis points of rate hikes. So it's not the fact that rates have moved higher, but it's how quickly they have moved higher. And obviously, we know implications of that. Mortgage rates have moved higher in a meaningful manner. So Fed-induced as of right now, but at the same time, there are some glimmers of hope, which is, of course, that the labor market is still very strong. It's interesting because, like you said, a year ago, the expectation for the Fed was 75 basis points Mm -hmm. of rate hikes over a year. And there's been times this year where we expect that amount of rate hikes in a meeting. It goes to your point of Fed-induced that the market this year has been perhaps surprised to the extent that the Fed has been raising interest rates. And maybe that's a big reason for why we could tip 
into recession. Alex, is that the same in Europe? Is it central bank policy and rising rates that is the real reason for why the region could move into recession? Or, or I think you also touched on energy being another contributor there. So I think the picture is same, same, but different on this side. And it's the same in the sense, as Gargi was describing, of having these core inflation pressures. So broad inflation in the euro area, it's about 5%. In the UK, it's about six relative to targets of two. So they've got this imbalance between activity in the economy and the activity level that can be comfortably sustained without driving up prices. And so the central banks need activity to fall if they're going to get core inflation back down again. And that's similar between Europe and the US. The difference, though, is how much work the central banks in Europe need to do to generate that outcome. The Fed has to do the heavy lifting in the US to get that outcome. In Europe, the scale of the energy shock, which is driving up headline inflation, but really importantly, squeezing household incomes and damaging business confidence, that's actually going to drag on activity in the economy. So the central banks here, the ECB and the Bank of England, they don't have to do as much as the Fed in order to generate the same kind of outcome. And to give you a sense of the scale of the issue here, gas prices for the next year in Europe are hovering about 150 euros a unit. That's about six times what it was in 2021. Uh, and it's the equivalent of an oil price of about $250 a barrel. So that's the scale of the energy shock in Europe. It's driving up headline inflation rates to north of 10%, so double-digit headline inflation rates. And it's what's really squeezing household incomes and company activity, despite the fact that governments are providing a very big amount of support for the rest of the economy. But despite that, they're really feeling the pinch in households and companies across Europe, and that's going to be dampening activity. And the central banks... They won't be cutting interest rates into that. They'll be raising them into that because like the Fed, they're actually looking to generate a slowdown in demand. Alex, can you remind us, what is it that's caused the energy crisis in Europe? Why is it that energy prices are at the equivalent of $250 a barrel of oil? And then let's talk a little bit about how Europe is trying to cope with that. The original cause was following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Europe seeking to wean itself off of its reliance on Russian energy supply. And what that meant was it effectively stranded Russian fossil fuel energy supply as Europe searched the globe for alternative supplies and put pressure on those supplies, try and get them into Europe. Now, what's happened since is that Russia has taken action to disrupt supply through the Nord Stream pipelines. Europe is now very reliant on sourcing liquid natural gas and coal from other sources around the world. And that's really driven up prices. So Europe's effectively trying to wean itself of Russian energy. And as a result, is needing to pay a lot more for its energy. That was the original cause of the energy shock here. And how is Europe replenishing some of those reserves or replacing some of the energy supply that they would otherwise get from Russia? Is it enough? And what will it mean for growth and inflation in the region as they replenish their energy supply? So Europe's actually done reasonably well in building up inventories, particularly of gas. So gas storage facilities are about 95% full. The levels of storage are above where you would normally expect them to be at this time of the year. So in recent months, Europe has actually used the time very effectively to build up pretty much as much of a stock of gas as it can. And actually now, this week, you see that prices of liquid natural gas for delivery now have fallen very sharply. Why? Well, there's simply nowhere to put it. There's no more storage left to fill. 
The issue, though, is how things look after the winter. And even if Europe gets a kind of unusually warm winter, we will still see those stocks depleted pretty significantly. And if Russia continues to restrict supply through the pipelines, and remember, Europe doesn't really want that Russian supply ideally either, that means big depletion of stocks through the course of the winter into the first quarter of next year. And in all likelihood, in our view, means that there will need to be some form of gas rationing in Europe by the first quarter of next year. That will be one thing weighing on activity in Europe. It'll be something restricting the capacity of the European economy to produce goods and services. And it'll also be adding to persistent inflation pressures in those outputs. So we expect disruption in gas supply and also some reduction in overall activity as a result with some extra persistence of inflation because of this too. Cargie, listening to Alex, we're sitting here in the U.S. It feels like the energy crisis in Europe is more severe. But having said that, energy prices in the U.S. have also gone up. And OPEC has recently announced production cuts in oil. So what does that mean for what energy prices are going to do in the U.S.? And what is that going to then mean for inflation? So to your point, OPEC did recently announce their cuts of about 2 million. I do want to point out one quick thing around that, that it's not actually 2 million barrels. It's from their baseline guidance. So it ends up being a little less than that because not every country is producing at the level that they should be at. Call it about a million barrels, but that's still a lot in terms of supply, especially when you think about a world in which there was already demand supply imbalance in the oil market, which wasn't necessarily related just to the war or some of the factors that Alex was talking about, but more broadly about the underinvestment in the space that has taken place over the last few years. Now, I'll say that it's very interesting in the U.S. markets because there are twin forces that are driving price action in the energy market. So on one hand, you have the supply cut from the OPEC plus. Obviously, that is something that could and has lead to a knee-jerk reaction higher. And this is also coming at a time when global inventories are already pretty tight. They're already pretty low. And, you know, some thoughts around China eventually re-emerging from the COVID zero policies that have been in place for a very long time. And that's, again, another two million barrels a day coming back online for demand when that economy opens up. And we know that people have huge amounts of pent up desire to travel. We saw that here in the U.S. last year. But against that, I talked about those twin forces. You do have a pretty rapidly declining macroeconomic environment. And we start off talking about a recession, saying that we're not in one in the U.S. yet or in the European region yet, but that we could get there. And of course, that would mean that would destroy demand to a certain extent. Now, when we balance all of that, when we look at the drivers of higher prices, so we think about the demand that could come back from China, we think about the inventory levels that are already pretty low, we think about OPEC Plus's actions more recently, and we balance that with the slowdown in growth, it still looks, at least to me, to a picture that could mean that energy prices remain elevated for a longer period of time. And I want to come back to something that's really important, especially in the U.S. more recently, which is with respect to the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, the SPR. Think of that as sort of an emergency stockpile of petroleum that the U.S. has in store. 
And they release that when it's absolutely necessary, such as now. And since March, we have been releasing petroleum from that reserve. And we're sitting at 40-year lows. When we look at what the holding levels in SPR is, the stockpile reserves can hold a little bit over 700 million barrels. And we're at 40-year lows. And between now and the end of the year, President Biden announced that they will be releasing 15 million more barrels a day, which is perhaps the final tranche. But an interesting note, is that they will eventually have to stop releasing inventory. And if anything, they have to refill the reserve, right? And they've talked about at what price levels they'll refill that reserve, which is around $67 to $72 a barrel. So I think that's, again, certainly supply that can come to the market, but it's not unlimited supply. And we've already had that from March And if anything, we are soon going to be thinking about refilling that because we need to do that and hopefully do that when price levels are a little bit more conducive. So all of this leads me to believe that there is a higher floor. I'm not going to necessarily say that we're going to continue to see oil prices climb from here. I hope that's not the case for all our wallet's sake and for the sake of global inflations and central bank policies. But at the same time, it does mean that the floor remains higher than where we have seen it in the past. So maybe, Alex, on this intersection of the energy crisis in Europe and what it means for investment opportunities. We talk about this concept of transition investing and how the energy crisis might accelerate this transition to a net zero economy. So can you just start with what do we mean by transition investing? And then how is the net zero transition evolving given what you're seeing in Europe? So that transition we actually see being accelerated by the energy crisis that's unfolding in Europe. Now, obviously, the immediate issue in Europe to alleviate pressure on families and companies is actually to source the immediately available alternatives to Russian supplies of fossil fuels, particularly gas. And that's a vital move over the coming months in the way we've been discussing. But the other thing that's happened here is that by driving up the prices of fossil fuels that Europe has to pay, it's effectively created an extra incentive for Europe to drive its own transition towards using more renewable energy. And why is that? Well, first of all, it's the economics. On a kind of like-for-like basis, the cost of solar power generation and wind power generation is now much lower than the cost of generating power in Europe through fossil fuels. So there's an economic incentive in Europe to drive that transition. But there's also an incentive in Europe now to drive for energy security. And without ready domestic supplies of fossil fuels, the only way for Europe to do that is to build out its own supply of an infrastructure around clean energy. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a short-term and serious issue for Europe, but will actually provide a longer-term impetus to drive that transition forward. And to give you a fact that illustrates the scale of the problem, Europe is now paying almost 10% of its GDP, 10% of its whole national income is its energy bill. And that's as high or higher than it was in the 1970s oil crisis. And that's really what's spurring Europe to make these changes. And the Repower EU plan commits Europe to massively increase its reliance on clean energy over the rest of this decade. And the authorities have announced speeding up of permissions to build the infrastructure around this, a series of grants and loans. And to go back to the question about transition investing, this build out in Europe will require huge investment 
in this sort of infrastructure and development in the transition. And those incentives are being put in place by the authorities. So this is a huge investment opportunity because Europe will have a huge investment need. I really like this example because a lot of our discussion so far has been a bit sort of glass half empty, right? Not yet in a recession, but we might be headed there. Interest rates have been going up, an energy crisis. But on the other side of this discussion is this reality that there are investment opportunities that are arising from all of this. And so, Alex, I'm just going to wrap up with you here. Given your background as an economist, does this remind you of any period of in the past? What do you see going forward? Is there some light at the end of the tunnel that we can leave our audience with? I would just draw out two points. The first is that maybe unlike the 1970s, which is probably the closest historical parallel, inflation expectations have remained fairly well anchored on central bank targets. And that's because relative to that position, we now have in most of the developed world, credible, independent central banks, people are very sure that ultimately, ultimately may take time, but ultimately, they will bring inflation down. And that means we won't need to see the kind of recessions we saw in the early 80s, that were really necessary to squeeze all the inflation out of the system. We're talking about having a recession to bring the overall level of activity in the economy down a bit, into line with its kind of comfortable supply capacity. That's a very different type of recession to the one we had in the 1970s. The other lesson from the 1970s is that the oil shock back then really drove innovation and structural change in the economy. Economies over the subsequent decades really adapted to that new environment. The oil intensity of GDP fell steadily over time. And that shows you that when economies are having trouble, They're very good at adapting, very good at creating new investment opportunities, very good at building new resilience. And to apply that to the current situation, particularly in Europe, Europe has realized that relying on Russian supplies, particularly of gas, is an expensive business and a volatile business and cuts across its geopolitical objectives as well. And so this will really drive Europe on its transition towards cleaner energy use in particular, which is what creates these huge structural shifts in the economy that create these investment needs and these investment opportunities as well. That's a great point to end on. Alex, as always, you're a fantastic guest. Gargi, I think you've done as good a job as a guest as you do as a host. You can now wear both hats. Thank you both for being on The Bid. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bid. On our next episode, Mark Weedman takes us to see how Volvo trucks are leading the global trucking industry in the transition to net zero. Make sure you subscribe to The Bid wherever you get your podcasts. This material is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities, funds or strategies to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase or sale would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change without notice. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risks. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a as a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. For more information, visit blackrock.com forward slash the bid.